We are obviously close to the end of the year, and I do think it's natural for us at this time of the year to start to look ahead to the next year. And as you do that, I wonder what you expect for this coming year. I guess that the range of responses in your own minds would be as wide as the different backgrounds that are represented in this room. I also wonder how you would respond in your own heart to the question, what do you expect from God? And why is it that you expect from God whatever it is that comes to your mind from Him? I think there's few things so discouraging as low expectations, maybe that others have for you or you have for yourself or or you have for your future. There's few things as encouraging as when our expectations are exceeded, whether that's the dinner that you eat or evening out with people you don't know, or especially when our expectations are exceeded with God, who He is what he's like. What do you expect from God? For the next four Fridays, we're going to look together at songs or hymns of Jesus from the Scripture. Two from the Old Testament, two from the New. Songs meant to change our expectations. This morning, we do that from the book of Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 42. Isaiah is a a prophet who revealed to God's people, particularly the Holy One of Israel, the one who is the lone sovereign over heaven and earth, the, the one who reigns over the idols. When Isaiah wrote this book, the people of God had been faithless. They were not yet away from their land in exile, but they soon would be. And the prophet made that clear. What does God say to his people through this prophet? Does he give them more judgment? Condemnation? Shockingly, no. In this book, God, through the prophet Isaiah, sends his good news ahead to his people who will be in exile And he changes their expectation. Despite what they expect, God promises that he has not and he he will not forget his people, but instead he will accomplish a world-transforming salvation for his people through a mysterious servant who will come into history. God will rescue his people and God will transform the universe. What are your expectations for the future? What are your expectations of God? Let God's word from Isaiah 42 shape your expectations this morning. Look down to verse 1. We're going to read the first nine verses. This is the prophet Isaiah. This is the word of God. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Here's Isaiah's main point in these verses this morning. The sovereign Lord will give the world the servant whose surprising work will transform the world. The sovereign Lord will give the world the servant whose surprising work will transform the world. We'll see this in two points this morning. One, the Lord's anointed servant, the Lord's anointed servant, and two, the servant's sure Lord, the servant's sure Lord. May the Lord write his word on your hearts this morning. Let's see first the Lord's anointed servant, verses one to four. With your your copy of the scriptures open, I want you to look just up to chapter 41. There in chapter 41, verses 21 through 29, Isaiah at that point is making a mockery of human idols. Unlike Yahweh, in verse 22, they, they cannot declare the former things. They cannot declare the things to come. They cannot, verse 23, do good or do harm. Idols cannot do anything. Ultimately, Isaiah says there in verse 29, Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. And immediately, when we turn to chapter 42, a better vision. Behold, my servant, this mysterious servant of whom the prophet Isaiah will write four poems or songs in between chapters 40 and 55. How many of you have ever watched an artist paint a picture in person? Some of you have. Some of you should get out more. In an effort to capture natural light and color of what they were painting, there were French Impressionist artists in the 19th century who radically did not do their work in a studio, but did it out in front of people. And they would paint whatever or whomever they were painting live. They they painted with quick brush strokes so that they could actually capture the, the visual effects of the lights and the shadows. 
And as they would paint, slowly a picture would emerge that would begin to slowly make sense and ultimately would allow those looking at the painting to see reality more realistically. This is how you should understand Isaiah revealing to us the servant. He's carefully painting a picture for us through these four servant songs. There's a blurriness to it at first. Who is this mysterious servant? What is the servant? And the the picture takes time to become more clear, but as Isaiah unveils his prophecy, it emerges. And then in history, when the servant comes into history, it all becomes crystal clear. But if you had been a first reader of this text in the nation of Israel, you would have immediately thought of Israel as the servant. And that would be with good reason. In Isaiah 41, Yahweh declares, you, Israel, my servant. Israel was God's servant. At a task, a mission in the world. But Israel, the servant, had given herself over to the idols. Instead of drawing the nations to Yahweh, the nations had pulled the Israelites away to the idols. And in contrast to those human idols, God reveals this coming servant. Matthew, in his own gospel, in chapter 12, he takes these actual four verses and he applies them all to Jesus Christ. Notice first here the, the servant's unique relation to Yahweh. Look there in verse 1. He is empowered and sustained by Yahweh, whom I uphold. God holds the servant fast. God will not let the servant go. He's loved. He's delighted in by Yahweh, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. So the servant is the Lord's. And whatever it is that the servant must do, it's not an impersonal relationship. This is not a relationship that is reduced to just fulfilling a task. It's one of delight and love. Yahweh takes pleasure in the servant, and the servant will take pleasure, delight in Yahweh. And the servant is uniquely endowed with the Spirit. I have put my Spirit upon him. The servant is uniquely empowered by God. Unlike Israel, the nation, who would be overpowered by the nations, would fail in the mission that they had to the world, servant will not. I think even here, if you were an ordinary Hebrew boy or girl, you would have taken great encouragement that the mission God had given you to fulfill, but had obviously failed in fulfilling that God would somehow, some way, through Spirit-anointed power, accomplish it. What would be accomplished would have to be done supernaturally, not naturally. So what is God doing to His wearied people? He's reorienting their expectations. Isn't this your hope? that God can and will do what human flesh cannot do? We read this with the benefit of so much more light. 
We read this looking back through the cross and the the resurrection of Christ, but they could not. This picture was cloudy to them. They were invited to behold this servant who was different from the dead idols that they had so easily and foolishly worshipped. But our God is good in that he does not just call us away from idols. He gives us a better vision. He gives us one who is better to behold. The Lord always exceeds the expectations of his people. He always exceeds who we as his people so naturally and sinfully settle for. He gives the servant. Uniquely empowered, loved, upheld, anointed by God. And that's absolutely necessary because the servant has a unique mission to the world. Look at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now that's the, the rhythm, the drumbeat of these first four verses. Look at into verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The end of verse 4. Till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. So justice, justice, justice. This is his servant's mission. So what part of the picture is Isaiah painting? That the servant will accomplish justice. But in this sense, the servant will reveal Yahweh is God, not the idols. Isaiah reveals a world that is God-centered. All is centered on God, whether it knows it or not. And anything that is not is false. So the servant's work in bringing this kind of justice is revelation to the world. He reveals truth, reveals the covenant, Lord. And yet the servant will also bring a just order to this unjust world. Isaiah is certainly concerned to reveal how the servant will accomplish justice and satisfaction for sinners in making sinners right with God. Apart from that kind of vertical justice, there can be no horizontal justice in the world. But do remember that at this point, Isaiah's brushstrokes are slowly beginning the picture, and he, he hasn't yet formed the picture of Jesus completely. He's given hints of one who's coming who will absorb the wrath of God. But the idea that God himself would sacrifice his own son as a payment for our sins wasn't yet clear in this first servant song. So there's a tension as you read this. How can God remain just, do justice, and punish sin, but also forgive sinners who are guilty before God? The picture emerges slowly. Somehow this servant will bring a totally new and transformed world order, true justice to the nations, between the nations. And when he brings this just world order, idols will be seen for the illusion and the emptiness that they are. Yahweh, when he comes in Christ, will be seen, beheld as the one true and only God. 
and the servant's mission will be worldwide in its scope. How do we know that? Notice there in verse four, the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands, the islands, the most remote people in the most remote places wait for his law, his Torah, his instruction. So what is God saying through Isaiah to his wearied, sinful, exiled people? The servant is coming, and despite what you see and expect, the servant will transform the world. Justice, peace. Isaiah had made so clear in this prophecy that God's people would be taken into captivity, that God not only would order world history for their judgment, but he would even raise up nations and empires to bring his people into judgment. How out of reach, how elusive then and now does a lasting and just peace feel in this world? How much more if you'd been one of the first readers of this book? I want you to imagine that you had been just an ordinary Israelite taken forcibly from your homeland, forced to live under the domination of the world empire of that day, no security in any sense in the world, really no sense of good earthly prospects for the future. And what is your God saying to you as you read this prophet? By his power and praise his name by his initiative, he is committed to bringing justice. And when he brings justice, he will do so in a way that is just. Ultimately, Isaiah will reveal that the servant will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity. The servant will suffer judgment for real sin and real sinners, and so make sinners justly in the right with God, and ultimately make all things right in the world. And is God ever coerced? Is he bribed to do this? No, here is God acting out of the depth of the goodness of his own character. Where would any of us be apart from the initiative of God? God takes the initiative toward his sinful people. Now just consider what this tells us about the character of God. He is unchanging in his purposes, his good purposes to pursue his glory, to reveal his glory. Why is that good news for us? Because in God's pursuit of his own glory, in his own pursuit to bring justice to the nation, God accomplishes our salvation in Christ. And God takes this initiative not because of any worthiness in us, but because God really is this good. And if God was taking initiative then, why would he stop taking initiative now? If God had made plans to save you in Christ long before you were born, why would he stop doing good to you now if you're a Christian? 
now that you're in Christ. We so easily think hard thoughts of God. And again and again, as we read the word of God, God is taking shocking steps to reveal to us just how good, deeply good he is. It's good sometimes to let your mind wander and think on the world to come. What it will be like when you take your first step into a world marked by perfect justice. No idols, no evil, no religion that is false. Just God brought, God given justice against every human reason to believe it or expect it. God reveals the servant. And he reveals the servant that you and I might know something better is coming. Why are you hopeless or despaired? Why do you fear what the world fears when you know this? God then, God now, he raises the expectations of his people so that we might live differently. God always reveals his future work in the world to change our expectations, which means that changes what we do with our lives. So God puts his glory on display in this way so that we might be a people who live with an otherworldly, steadfast love and joy. And our God is not a God who has stopped taking initiative. Our God has acted in the past, but his past actions have not exhausted his power. His actions in the past are patterns for his actions and his initiatives in the future. God means by his word to readjust your expectations, your sight, your faith, by revealing his choice servant by God's initiative, by God's power, who will bring justice. When this world of injustice is a long gone forgotten age. But how? How will the servant do this in a most unexpected way? Here Isaiah paints a brushstroke we would have never expected. Verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. This mission of justice will be accomplished in a way in which the servant does not draw attention to himself. It's almost as if he will do it unnoticed. Alec Matier writes, the emphasis is on a quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening ministry. What the world will consider to be weakness will be the revelation of the strength of God. What will be largely unnoticed by the world will be the very place where God is at work in greatest power. This is so like our God. You know, if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, to be your savior, you might expect 
that God always acts in great power in obvious ways, and sometimes he does that. But often he works in what appears to be weakness. It's why Christians cling to and live underneath the cross. We live in a world that is taken with, that beholds all the wrong things and fails to see what truly lasts. The servant will not. What else does the servant not do? Verse 3, he will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a faintly burning wick. A reed is a thin piece of wood or a, a long piece of grass. And the fact that it is bruised means it's, it's useless. The faintly burning wick, it's about to go out. Richard Sibbs was a 17th century pastor in England. He wrote a great work on this passage. It's called The Bruised Reed. It's just meditations from Isaiah 42. It's been so helpful to me in the past two days just to look back at it as I prepared for this text. And in this book, Sibbs defines the bruised reed not as those who are only brought low by their crosses, but those who are brought to see their sin. He writes, a, a man truly bruised judges sin the greatest evil and the favor of God the greatest good. It's better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. Are you bruised? Do you feel and know your sin? The servant comes for you. The servant who will not crush the weak will not be like human conquerors who use and dominate the weak. He cares for the weak. Can you imagine what it was like when Jesus came into history and suddenly he's healing men with withered hands? He's touching lepers. He's moving toward women that society had cast out. He shows embarrassing compassion to scandalous sinners. How different he was. How different he would have been from Cyrus, the ruler, whom Isaiah has already, just the chapter before, also said would be God's servant. But unlike this servant, Cyrus would actually give up nations and trample kings underfoot. Here we see a different kind of servant. He does not trample the weak. He will not break the bruised reed. He will not give up the nations. He will die for them. Are you bruised and knowing the weight of your sin and weakness? Even this morning, here is the servant for you. His mercy goes deeper than your own sin, Christian. In verse 4, he will not faint. He will not grow weary. He brings justice to the world. He will know great pressure in his mission, but he will not faint. And unlike Cyrus, who Isaiah says will bring fear to the coastlands, the most remote people, when the servant comes, they will know joy in the knowledge of his truth as they receive his instruction. What we have here are these early brushstrokes of the one who will embody and actually be 
true Israel, Jesus Christ. He will not break a bruised reed. Do you know your need of Christ? Maybe you think yourself to be one of Christ's weak sheep. He cares for you in ways you cannot begin to fathom. And if that's true of Christ and his heart toward his people, shouldn't that be true of us and our heart toward each other? Sibs writes in this book, the best men are severe to themselves, tender over others. The scope of true love is to make the other party better. Isn't that what the servant does? Isn't that what God does for his people in Christ? He makes the other party not just better, but justified, eternally in the right. God acts against every human expectation to this sinful, idolatrous people. God says through Isaiah, the servant is coming and he's my choice servant. And secondly, let's see here the servant's sure Lord. The servant's sure Lord. Verses 5 through 9. I love it when there's a big boxing match that I'm actually interested in about to happen. And one of the things that I love about those fights is that inevitably, one or both boxers guarantee a win. And they often guarantee they're going to knock the other boxer out in an early round. And then I also love that, of course, the boxers, when they do their weigh-in, they almost inevitably get into a fight while they're staring at each other. I think this is great for generating interest and people to actually buy the pay-per-view, but it carries a lot of risk. There is a legitimate chance it will not work out, as predicted. In this text, Yahweh, the covenant Lord of tiny, insignificant Judah, is guaranteeing something much greater than an early round knockout. He's guaranteeing worldwide justice through an unimpressive servant. But he also guarantees more. And in doing that, he draws our focus, our eyes to himself. Look at verse 5. The Lord of tiny Judah is not a tribal God. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The name Lord is Yahweh, the covenant name by which God's people knew him. And who is Judah's Lord? The creator, the sustainer of everyone and everything. Look at how he's revealing himself. The Lord who created stretched out the heavens, spread out the earth, gives breath and spirit. God's people then now are surrounded in a world of idols. The Lord is raising our sight spiritually to see his power uniquely as creator and sustainer. We do not live in a world that was created or brought about between, by conflict between the gods or some random natural accident. The Lord has done everything from the creation purposely. And what's more, he sustains the world, all of it. 
I wonder if your view of God has just slowly diminished. I wonder if the thoughts of God in your own mind and heart have become old hat. God means to raise your gaze to see his greatness here. Who is our God? He is the Lord who created everything. So easy to look around the world and to fail to see that the world is and continues because the God who transcends time and the world and everything by his unparalleled power sustains the world. But he doesn't just sustain the world. He sustains people. He gives breath to the people on it. Spirit to those who walk in it. You and I are here this morning because God continues to give us breath and spirit. You see how personal God is. How unchanging he is toward his creation and his creatures. The scriptures do not present us a God who wound up the clock and is now just letting it run on its own. The scriptures, Isaiah specifically, links God the creator with God the redeemer, God the sustainer. Why are you alive this morning? Because the God who created the universe has sustained you to this very moment. Life is personal. Life is weighty. And for you, Christian, life is good. All of his power is being exercised for your eternal good in Christ. Do you realize that God is not confirming the servant's mission by revealing careful strategies? He's revealing himself. It's one thing when an athlete guarantees a win based on their sense of their own greatness. It's something altogether different when the triune God does by revealing himself. What's God doing for his people? He is saying, do not look at your circumstances. Do not look at the idols. Behold me. Think on whom I am. Believe me, I'm not a weak, powerless deity before the world. I've created everything. I sustain everything you see. And ultimately, I will bring all of my purposes to pass. So this morning, behold the Lord. And allow that in a beautiful way to make you feel a sense of your own smallness before him. The Lord who creates the Lord sustains, and the sure Lord who reigns over the idols. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, he identifies himself as the Lord, and he's concerned here to make clear he doesn't share his glory, not his praise with carved idols. Here's God setting himself apart. Why is it good that God doesn't share his glory? He's the most glorious being in the universe. No glory exceeds his. If he were to give it away, he would give it to that which is lesser. To praise the idols is to give praise to that which cannot hold the weight of worship. God first is creator. God is sustainer. God who will not share his glory. Who reigns over the idols. And verse 9, he demonstrates this by holding out what he alone does that no idol can. Notice the former things that have come to pass, new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In some circles, it's argued that this portion of Isaiah was written by someone else other than the biblical Isaiah. After all, Isaiah predicts coming 
Persian ruler. He names him Cyrus. It's the one God will use. And so it's argued that a different person must have written this part of the book at a later date, given the, in part, the specificity of the predictions here. But the argument made here explicitly is by God declaring that he declares new things before they spring forth. God declares his godness based on this reality. Unlike the idols, God can declare things that have yet to happen. We as Christians believe in the God who has declared everything from the end to the beginning. We believe in the God who's created the world out of nothing, who gives life to dead hearts. We believe in these miracles. We have no problem believing in the God who calls his shots ahead of time, who says what he will do before he does it. Brothers and sisters, if we're not shaped by the scriptures, we are in danger of thinking of the God who is more like the God who are not. We are in danger of reducing the true God who cannot, who will not be reduced. We are meant to see the godness of God in this passage. He declares new things before they spring forth because there are new, unimaginably good things that are coming. There is a song by an American rock and roll singer named Bruce Springsteen, and it's called Glory Days. It's a great song. I don't know, maybe go listen to it later today. It's actually inspired by a time when Springsteen ran into a childhood fit friend that he had played baseball with. And the song is about the glory days of high school, when he was in school, what life was like then, how the glories of those days are, are so unique and they come and go so quickly. Some of us feel that in our efforts to play sports with people still in high school. I think we all know people, whether they're in, whether it was college or high school, that, that never seem to get past it. They live back in the glory days. They never seem to move on as they grow older. Here is the covenant Lord declaring his glory from the past. But he's not stopping there. He's saying new things are coming. He's declaring them before they do them. God's glorious actions in the past have not exhausted his power. They are patterns. They are predictors for his future acts. So when you read the Exodus, when you read of God's work raising up and bringing down empires, think to yourself, God is going to do something even more powerful in the future. With our God, the glory days are always in the future. A.W. Tozer says this, when what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We need right thoughts of God because our lives flow out of what we think about God. God is readjusting our sight and our understanding of him that we might live before the powers of this world, not in fear, but in faith in who he is. God declares who he is and what the servant will do before he does it. And that's what he does there. In between verses 5 and, and 8 and 9, he speaks directly to the servant about his task. Verse 6, I am the Lord. The drumbeat of the first four verses was justice, justice, justice. In these last five verses, it's Lord, Lord, Lord. 
He tells the servant, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. So the servant's calling and mission will be upheld by the Lord. The Lord will give him as a covenant for the people. What did Israel fail to do? They failed to keep covenant with the Lord, but not the servant. When he keeps covenant, it will be for the people. The works required for our salvation, the servant will do. Salvation is by Christ's works, not our works. He is given as a covenant for the people. God gives the servant the servant for guilty people, people who have failed him, broken covenant. What does a covenant entail? Blessings and curses, penalties for covenant breakers. But what did the servant do? He took the penalty and the curse on himself. Jesus Christ kept the covenant required from God that his people could not keep. And what's more, Jesus Christ died for covenant breakers. Remarkably, the God who is holy and eternal and unchangeable, who transcends, has come near in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has come for sinners who have worshipped and gone after false gods. And Jesus Christ has not just come for sinners. He's lived for sinners. He's died for sinners. He's been raised for sinners. This morning we have beheld God. We have beheld the servant. And my hope for you if you're not a Christian is that you find this God astonishingly beautiful. But outside of Christ Jesus, God stands against you because of your sin. Here in this part of the scriptures, Isaiah is making so clear you cannot work your way to God. God does the work for you to bring you to himself through the servant. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ has been raised. Come to Christ, not by your works, but by trusting in his works, by repenting of your works and putting your faith in him. Christ will receive you. Do you know yourself to be a sinner, to be guilty? Christ has come for you. And he offers you salvation without money and without price. And the servant has come for the nations. End of verse 6. The Lord tells the servant, I give you as a light for the nations that walk in darkness. The servant's mission expands to the Gentile world. How is he light for the nations? Verse 7. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the darkness and dungeons. God's people knew this when they were delivered from exile, but their deliverance from exile pointed forward to a greater deliverance. As I was reading this, I was just thinking about what it was like for Jesus, the boy, to read this text and to slowly, as he grew in wisdom and stature, begin to understand this was about him. This was his mission, that he was the one who would keep covenant and bring light to the nations, and he did not run from that mission. He fulfilled it. God's goodness is seen in that long before the servant came to bring light to the world, God was preparing the world for the servant. He spoke about it. He spoke to the servant ahead of time 
slowly revealing the brush strokes of the painting of what he would do. God planned your salvation. God guaranteed the success of your salvation long before your and my salvation were ever accomplished. And can you imagine, if this is true, the good plans he has for us in Christ now that our salvation is accomplished? The cross and the resurrection stand immovably in history, announcing to the world, God is good, and God gives grace to guilty sinners. Our God plans good for his people. How could you plan to do good? What if you were to take the long view of your life for the next few years? How could you faithfully pray and plot for the glory of God with your life? Could you invest in other people, members of this body, people that need to hear the word of the the gospel? Could you plan for evangelism? Could you plan for spiritual growth in your life? Surely we could be those, if our God has acted with this kind of intentionality toward us, those who act in intentional ways to do good to others. Now, knowing you all, I know well some of you have done this with your lives exemplary. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. Your God is in in it for the long haul and he will sustain you. And ultimately, every one of his good plans are a certainty in Christ. Our God is the creator, the sustainer, the one who does not share his glory. And if he fails, we fail, but he will not fail. He has bound himself to us in Christ. Behold the servant. Behold the Lord. The Lord who plans joy for this world that has walked in darkness. The Lord who transcends the universe, sustains the universe, comes near in a lowly way to sinners. The Lord who will not share his glory is the Lord who did not seek glory when he came into this world. What other God is like our God? What other God will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoking flax? What other God brings himself, binds himself to sinners who keeps the covenant we failed to keep and pays our penalty with his blood? Behold the servant who redefines and reverses human expectations and destiny. And he does so in the most unexpected and even the seemingly most unimpressive ways. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word and what you have revealed to us in it this morning. We pray you would lift our eyes to Jesus Christ to behold you, and we plead with you to free us from the idols that so easily capture our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.